Well, how's my 11:30 crowd feeling today? You guys excited to be here? All right, awesome, awesome, awesome. I am pumped up, fired up, excited to be back in the saddle. You know, I, I enjoy time away with my family, but uh, there is no place like home. I always miss it when I'm not here with all of my church family. You guys, Easter is two weeks away, 14 days, and studies show, you probably heard me say this before, that Christmas and Easter are the two holidays that you, uh, 83% of people surveyed say they would go to church if a family member or friend invited them to church. So 83% likely you are to get a yes if you simply just extend this invite to someone uh, and invite them to be a part of what God is doing here Easter Sunday. I hope you'll pray about that. Take some of these with you and uh, let's believe God for a harvest of righteousness this coming Easter as we celebrate the day that changed all of history, the day that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave and walked out of that tomb never to enter again. Can I get an amen, somebody? Well, for those of you who are new, my name is Pete. I serve as the lead pastor here, and we are excited to have you with us as we are continuing this series called The Darkest Hours. It's a seven-week series where we're taking a look at the seven statements that Jesus made during his darkest hours on the cross. And listen, this wasn't just uh, any old day. These statements weren't just any type of statements. No word ever spoken by Jesus was ever spoken on accident. While he was hanging on the cross, paying for our sin, a day of rejection and betrayal and suffering and humiliation unlike any other, Jesus spoke some words of wisdom in those dark hours that can help us today make it through our darkest hours. And that's why we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. The theme verse that we've been looking at through each week of the series is found in the book of Hebrews. And we've been looking at Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase as he kind of phrases it by saying, keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished the race that we're in. You see, Jesus didn't just come to die. He came to show us how to live as well. And because of that, we want to study how he did it. How did he live and how did he make it through his dark hours? And let's study the words that he spoke so that we can make it through our dark hours. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. Another translation says, you know, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was able to put up with anything along the way. How many of you would like to be able to put up with anything along the way as you make it through this life? I know I would. He put up with cross, shame, whatever, and now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. One translation says he is seated at the right hand of God and is right now, this very moment, making intercession for you and I. He is pleading our case before the Father. I'm so thankful that Jesus is praying for me in this moment. Amen? So we have so far looked at five statements that Jesus made while on the cross. And today, we're going to look at the sixth statement, which can be found in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 30, which says... When he had received the drink, and we talked about this last week, Pastor Lauren, you know, talked about his statement of, I thirst, and he had asked for a drink because of what he was about to say. He didn't want to speak these words with a dry or parched voice. He wanted to be able to announce this with, as a statement of victory, as he said, it is finished. Three words in the English language derived from one word in the Greek. The word is tetelestai, the greatest word spoken by the greatest man on the greatest day 
and history to tell us die. One word, but no word ever spoken has ever so impacted or altered the history and the destiny of mankind. And I hope that you'll join us for Good Friday because I'm gonna dive a little bit more deeply into this one word. There's volumes that could be said. Volumes have been written about this one word, to Telestai. It was not a resignation by Jesus. He was not admitting defeat. He was triumphantly declaring that he had accomplished the purpose for which he was sent. The most significant single word ever spoken in the New Testament translates to the most triumphant declaration of victory. And this one word contains both a prophecy and a verdict. Though still on the cross, Jesus was in essence prophesying the impending conclusion of his saving work. It was about to be done. He would soon breathe his last and he was prophesying it. But even before the cross's finale, which is important, even before the cross's finale, he also anticipated the father's verdict that the sacrifice he had become and had made for the sins of the world would be acceptable to his father and therefore his father would intervene and raise him from the dead in three days. This statement announces that both salvation and deliverance are now possible. A new day was about to dawn, and with it, our chains of slavery to sin and shame and condemnation were shattered forever. This statement welcomes you and I, welcomes fallen man back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. And though these words were the most climatic of the seven statements that he would make from the cross, they were not the last words. A lot of people mistakenly think that these were the last words he spoke, but in a few moments he would commit his spirit to the Lord, to his father, which we're going to talk about next week. But he was already confident, guys. He was declaring victory even though it appeared as if the enemy had won. It appeared as if he had been defeated. And therein, that's the lesson for us today. You see, the beauty and the power of these words, it is finished, is found in their finality as a statement of faith. The victory he declared was absolute, even though the victory wasn't yet visible. He was still hanging on the cross. He hadn't yet risen from the dead, so how could he declare it is finished? Because it wasn't yet. It is finished is Jesus' invitation to you and I to join him in the conviction and the confidence that because of the cross, there is no struggle, there is no suffering that you and I will ever experience that is without either a purpose or an end. And that is the lesson for us that we get from this statement today that we can be assured there is a purpose and an end. There's a purpose and an end. And I love that word assured because so many times when we're in our darkest hours, we want answers, right? We ask, why, God? And more than answers, I think what we need is assurance that God is up to something, that he knows what he's doing, that there's a purpose and an end. You see, Jesus not only announced salvation's finished work, but near the climax of his darkest hours, he summons us to embrace this truth in the midst of our darkest hours. 
that we can be assured there's a purpose and an end. That even before our darkest hour is over, we can invite God's presence and power to invade our struggle, releasing a strength and a grace to achieve his purposes in the end. You see, the cross demonstrates for us that when you're in your darkest hour, don't expect to see the full dimension of God's redemptive plan when you're in the midst of your struggle. You're not always going to see how it's going to turn out. Rarely will you see. You're not going to know what God's up to when you're in the midst of your darkest hour. But never doubt the certainty that even in your dark hour, he is working all things together for your good. It is finished is our call to hold firm to the assurance that his sovereign power will ultimately win the day. Listen, you might be here today and you might be in the middle of a dark hour yourself and you may not leave here with answers, but my hope and my prayer is that you'll leave here today with an assurance that everything you've suffered in your darkest hour has a purpose and an end. And if there's a story in the Bible that illustrates this, I think it's the story of Job. Believed by scholars to be the oldest book in the Bible, although it's not the first book in the Bible. And if you're not familiar with how the Bible is compiled, it's not assembled in chronological order. It's divided into sections, and we find the book of Job in the poetic section of the, New Te- of the Old Testament, I'm sorry. And the thing we know about Job, what is said about him is that he was a righteous and devout man who feared the Lord. God had blessed him. And he was, he had a very, very, very bad day. And one day he lost his house, he lost his kids, he lost his livestock, he lost all of his wealth. And how many of you know if that happened to you in one day, you'd be in some pretty dark hours, right? And if I can be just transparent with you guys today, I try to go through a reading plan every year on YouVersion. Uh, it's an app that I, I read my Bible with and uh, when I come to the book of Job and I see that pop up in my reading plan, I'm kind of like, oh. It's one of my least favorite books in the Bible. I know a pastor shouldn't say that about any book in the Bible, but it's just like 36 chapters of Job complaining to and questioning God. And I literally, sometimes I'll like skim, 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 skim. Okay, next. Skim, 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 skim. Okay, next. And it's like 36 chapters And all of it can kind of be summed up into one complaint that we find in the middle of it all. In Job chapter 30, verse 20, he says, I call to you, O God, but you never answer. Notice the exaggeration here. And when I pray, doesn't really seem like you're paying attention. Let's be honest, how many of us have ever felt like that before, right? I know I have. God, I've prayed but you haven't answered. Are you listening? Are you there? I, I asked that you would heal my dad. I asked that you'd heal my marriage. I, I asked for you to give us children. Your word declares that children are a blessing from the Lord. I asked for a job. God, are you there? Do you care? Are you listening? And it's like this for 36 miserable chapters. And finally, God has enough of Job's complaining. And we see that God answers him from a storm. And then for four chapters, we see God then beginning to question Job. So for 36 chapters, 
Job is complaining to and questioning God. And for four chapters, God then questions Job and says, okay, Job, if you're so smart, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, how did I separate the land from the sea, the night from the day? If you're so smart, Job, tell me how I did it. And Job was like, oh, my bad. Like, I am obviously talking about things that I don't really have an understanding of. And then Job makes a statement that alludes to some attributes of God's character and nature that you're going to need when you're in the midst of your darkest hour. He says this in Job 42, uh, verse 1. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And Job was like, uh, that was me. And surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job was basically saying, like, I have come to the conclusion that you are a really, really big God. And I had no business trying to act like I could understand your purposes or your ways. And by the way, you ought to be grateful that God knows some things you don't know. Like he's God and you're not. And if we're honest, like if all of God could fit into my brain, would he really be that big of a God? If you could fully comprehend and understand God, would he even be a God worth worshiping? He goes on to say in verse five, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In other words, I had heard about you. I had this distant relationship with you, but now it's more of an up-close and personal thing. And in these couple of verses, he alludes to these attributes of God that are still, that are a part of Christian theology today. And the first one is this. God is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He said, you can do all things. And if you want to impress your friends, the theological term for this is omnipotent. Omni for all, potent for powerful, omnipotent. And Paul says it this way in his letter to the Colossians, chapter one, verse 16, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. And if you think about that statement alone, like he even created the hill on which his son would die. Think about that. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And he's got the whole world in his hands, right? He, he really does. He holds all creation together. He is all powerful. And guys, that's why we pray for miracles is because he is all powerful. I would love for you guys to talk to Alice Clarkson, who's one of our experience coordinators here on our guest services dream team, who for the last five years has suffered from a debilitating disease called CRPS, which stands for chronic or complex regional pain syndrome. It's a form of chronic pain that usually affects an arm or a leg that typically develops after an injury or a stroke or um, a surgery or a heart attack. And we're talking, so for the last five years, Alice has lived in 24-7 pain. Pain that like the, the nerves send signals to the brain that you're in pain constantly. And I'm not talking like mild pain. I'm talking like when someone just blows air across your skin, it feels like someone's actually cutting your arm off. 
that kind of like level 10 excruciating pain. And in the last five years, she's had seven surgeries. They've implanted computers into her back, which were recently relocated to her stomach to kind of intercept the signals of those pain receptors so that she can at least try to function and live a normal life. And that was until about 35 days ago to the day. Five weeks ago, after service, we were praying for a handful of people after service that have been suffering from some physical ailments. And we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that by his stripes we are healed. And James says that if any among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church together. Let them lay hands and anoint them with oil, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And so five weeks ago on Sunday, we laid hands on Alice and we prayed for her, believing and asking God to show himself faithful and heal her. We went on. The next day, I get a text from Alice. She says, guess what? I have no pain today. The next day, we got another text. says, guess what? I still don't have any pain. The next day, we got another text. I can't believe it, guys. I still don't have any pain. And for 35 days now, Alice has had zero pain. Two or three weeks ago, she had her seventh or eighth operation where they relocated the computers and the doctors have not turned the computers on and the surgeon himself said, I have no explanation for why you're not in any pain, Alice. If there is a God, he must be on your side. It is a bona fide miracle, guys. He still heals. I love it. And I wanna see more of that in our church. Which drives me crazy when people are like, I, I don't believe in miracles anymore. I don't know why you guys have this blind faith in a God you can't see. And I'm like, what's the alternative? Trusting in yourself, right? I mean, I'd rather have hope in an all-powerful God than certainty in a very limited me. Amen? I'd rather put my hope in a God who can do everything and anything than certainty in a very limited me. And so moving God, Job said that, you know some things that are too wonderful for me to know. So the second attribute that I want to give you today is that God is all-knowing. And the theological term for that is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the small things. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows the big things. He knows the beginning from the end. So when you're in your darkest hour, not only does he know what you're going through because he's been there, he walked through it. He built, began and finished this race we're in. He was tempted in all ways as we are. So he knows because he's been there, but he also knows how it's going to turn out. The writer of Hebrews says this, he knows about everyone everywhere. Everything about us is bare and wide open to the all-seeing eyes of our living God. Nothing can be hidden from him. He, he sees everything and he knows everything. And I might not know exactly how my darkest hours are going to turn out, but he does. And that brings me comfort, that there is a God who knows everything. And when I'm in my darkest hour, like, who am I to question who he is or what he's doing? Like, he's God and I'm not. When you're in your darkest hour, you may not know the future, but never be afraid to trust an unknown future to an all-knowing God. I don't know if that brings you any comfort or not, but for me, it does. That even though I may not know how this is gonna turn out, I know who holds my future. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to an all-knowing God. I know my God is good. I know he's for me and I know he loves me. And even when I'm in my darkest hour and I don't know how it's gonna turn out, I know he does and I can rest in that. 
The third attribute of God that Job referred to when he says, but now I have seen you, was that God is ever-present. And the theological term for that is omnipresent. No matter where you go, God is there. There's no place you can go where he isn't there. He is everywhere all the time. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah when he said, who can hide in a secret place where I can't see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill the heaven and the earth? God's saying, I am everywhere all the time. There's nowhere you can go where I won't be there. And because of that, David would write in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you're there too. And in verse 11, he says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. In other words, your darkest hour is not dark to him because he's there and he's the light of the world. He is an ever present help in times of trouble. And Jesus himself even promised us before he ascended to the Father, after he had given the disciples and us our marching orders, what we call the Great Commission, when he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promised he would never leave us and that he would never forsake us. I am with you always. You know, my wife and I want to try and instill these core foundational truths into our boys' lives so that as they grow, they will never question whether or not God is with them. And when I was a baby and a small boy, my mom sang to me and to all three of my siblings three different lullabies uh, as part of our bedtime routine, a couple of which she kind of just made up herself. She felt like God gave her a melody and she put words to it. And we have kind of passed this tradition down with our boys. And uh, our boys are now seven and nine. And there's rarely a night that goes by that uh, one of them doesn't say, Mom, will you sing to us before we go to sleep? And so just about every single night, we still sing these three lullabies. And uh, the words to one of them help instill this truth. And the last two services, I actually tried to um, sing them. And I'm going to try to do that again, although my voice is completely shot. And so pray for me as I do this. But I just want to kind of give you an illustration of how we instill this in our boys. And so one of the lullabies goes like this. Jesus said, I'm with you always. Jesus said, I'm with you always. Do not fear, do not be afraid. I'm with you always. Now you know why I'm not on the worship team. Yes, you're going to walk through some dark hours, but he is going to be with you as you go through it. That's why David would write in the famous Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through the darkest of hours, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. He is with you. He is ever present. When we're in our darkest hours, like I said, I think we need assurance more than we need answers. And when I'm in my darkest hours, I can be assured that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's there. He is there with me. In my darkest hours, I can be assured there is a purpose and an end. 
you know, near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul would write to his spiritual son, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul would write. He's writing this from a prison in Rome where he would soon be beheaded for his faith. And in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this darkest hour, he writes this, 2 Timothy 1.12, I am suffering. He doesn't candy coat it. He doesn't try to pretend like he's not suffering. I am suffering yet. And I love the hope in the word yet. Yet I am not ashamed. Why? Because I know whom I have believed. Notice he doesn't say, I know about Jesus. No, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Like Jesus, who said, it is finished before it was finished, and like Paul, who knew some things in the midst of his darkest hour, I want you guys to leave here today knowing some things, being assured of some things that will help you make it through your darkest hours. And so I'm gonna give you four statements today that would really make great daily declarations. And so this is kind of your homework for this message. This is how you apply this message to your life. And I would really encourage you to write these four statements down Maybe think about putting them somewhere in your home that you'll see them every day. Maybe taping them to your bathroom mirror, writing them right on the mirror so that you can recite these out loud to yourself every single day. These assurances, this blessed assurance that we have in Jesus. And number one is this, I know that God loves me. I know God loves me and I know it because he laid his life down for me. And greater love has no man than this than he laid down his life for his friend. Jesus carried my sin and my shame so that I could be restored to a relationship with my heavenly father. I know God loves me. You know, we read a verse a little while ago from Jeremiah who wrote the book of Jeremiah, but he wrote another book in the Old Testament as well called Lamentations. And I love that there's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to complaining. It's a lament. That's a form of prayer, actually, lamentations. It's just pouring your heart out in these, you know, the, these grief and this sorrow. And for three chapters, Jeremiah just pours it out to God. He says, I remember my affliction. I remember my distress. My soul is downcast. But then in verse 21 of chapter 3, there's, there's a turning point where Jeremiah declares, yet this I call to mind. There's that word yet again. Yet this I call to mind, despite my darkest hours, I have hope because, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. When I'm going through my darkest hours, I have reason to hope because I know my God loves me. You know, one of the darkest hours that I've walked through that I've shared with you guys many times was when my first wife left. But before she left, we actually went to counseling to try to work things out. We were trying to save the marriage and, you know, I would have a session with the counselor and then she would have a session, then we'd have a joint session. And for months, uh, we tried to do this. And in one of the sessions with my counselor, I remember her asking me, she said, Pete, what will you do if this doesn't work? Like, what will you do if she decides, you know what, is not worth 
working on anymore. I'm done. And, and she leaves. And if this marriage doesn't work out, what will you do? And I had never really truly contemplated that, that question. And so I sat there kind of stunned and silent for a couple minutes as I stared at the floor before I finally looked up and I said to my counselor, I know my God. I know he loves me and I know he has a plan for my life. And I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I don't have to wait till I'm dead to experience a blessing from my God. I will see his goodness on this side of eternity because the, the, the foundation had been laid in me to know that my God loves me. He loves me. The second statement that I want you to write down is this. I know that God wants the best for me. I know he wants the best for me. And some of you guys, I think you don't really believe that. Some of you do. But I think a lot of us have an improper view of God. We either see him as a distant God who's uninvolved or uninterested in the details of our life, or we see him as this mean, angry God just waiting to beat us over the head if we screw up or get out of line. We see him as like the Wizard of Oz with this big green face and fire and smoke when we approach him and to intimidate us. And we ask him something like, you know, I want to go back to Kansas. And he's like, well, go get the Wicked Witch of the West, and you've got to perform for me before I'll grant you your request. And that's how we view God. And listen to me, your view of God will determine your relationship with him. We've got to see him better. We've got to believe that he loves us and he wants the best for us. And Paul knew this when he wrote to the Romans in Romans 8, when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And then in verse 35 he poses this question that so many of us ask when we're in our darkest hours. God, do you care? Do you love me? He says, does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? In other words, does it mean God loves us when we're in our darkest hours? And then he answers this rhetorical question, no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. No matter what we're going through, we still have the victory in Jesus. He loves us even in spite of those things, even when we're going through it, and he wants the best for you. No matter what dark hour you're in the middle of, it is finished. should help you realize that there is a purpose and an end and that God wants the best for you. Just a couple verses before this, Paul would write the verse that we love to quote, and I know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. You've got to see him the right way, though, because your view of God will determine your relationship with him. He's for you, and he wants the best for you. Number three, write this down. I know that God has a plan for me. I know God has a plan for me, and I might not see it, I might not understand it, but I know that he has a plan for my life. I remember another one of the dark hours that I've walked through, again, that I've shared with you many times, was when I was 21, and my dad at 46 was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I remember just being completely, you know, shocked by the diagnosis and sitting down in my prayer room and opening my Bible and questioning God and not understanding any of this and why. And I remember coming across the passage of scripture where Jesus was informed of his good friend Lazarus being sick. And 
He responds by saying, don't worry, the sickness will not end in death, but it will be for the glory of God. And I remember those words jumping off the page at me. And I believe God was speaking to me in that moment that this was for my dad, that this sickness was not gonna end in death, but it would be for the glory of God. And I started telling everybody that God was gonna heal my dad. I was convinced of it. And two days later, he went home to be with Jesus. And I was like, oh God, I thought you had spoken to me. I thought you told me you were gonna heal my dad. And some 20 years later now, I look back on that and I realize, you know what? I think that verse did come true, that this sickness did not end in death. Because when you know Jesus, when our physical bodies cease to exist, when we die, we don't really die. We just are transferred from this reality to the reality of being with Jesus. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it has resulted in glory and praise being given to God. Because listen to me, had my dad not died... I probably would have never left Hamburg Assembly of God, which means I would have never met my wife, which means I'd never have my kids, which means I probably wouldn't be here today, part of this amazing church where hundreds of lives are being changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You never know what's on the other side of your darkest hours. Sometimes I think what God's trying to do in our darkest hours is to get us uncomfortable enough so that it propels us into the destiny that he had for us all along. I mean, when you think about like a a baby eagle that's born, like the eaglets that are in the nest and the mama eagle makes that nest so comfy and cozy by patting it with feathers and with down. And when the time comes for those baby eaglets to learn how to fly, they're not gonna do it of their own volition because they're comfortable and they're safe. And so what does the mama eagle do? Starts making that nest really uncomfortable by pulling out all the feathers and the down so that all that's left are these sticks poking into the baby eaglets. They're like, man, this is terrible. We got to get out of here. And they start flying and doing what they were always created to do. Are you hearing me? Sometimes what you think is so terrible is just God preparing you to launch you into what he's created you to do all along. God has a plan for you. He spoke through the prophet Jeremiah when he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. What are those plans? They're plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God has a plan for you. And listen to me, those plans are not forfeit when you're going through your darkest hours. It is finished, declares that you're simply trusting his plan. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, which means it was always God's plan that his son would suffer and die. When Jesus said it is finished, he was trusting his father to accomplish the plan. When you're in the midst of your darkest hour, it is finished. It's simply for a way for you to acknowledge that you're trusting he has a plan for your life. There's a purpose and an end. The fourth statement I want to give you today, and I want you to write down, is that I know that God will bring me through. I know he'll bring me through. Being assured that God loves me, being assured that he wants the best for me, being assured that he has a plan for my life means that I can be assured and know that he will bring me through. It may not always be how I expect or want him to, but one way or another, he's going to bring me through my darkest hours. Going back to Paul's second letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, writing from a Roman prison, knowing that the end of his life is coming close, he would soon be beheaded for his faith. Paul writes 
this verse that used to confuse me, but I think I have some clarity on it now. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul writes, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. And when I read that, sometimes I'm like, you know, I've gone through some things that I wasn't rescued from. So Paul, are you confused? The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So which one is he gonna do? Is he gonna rescue me? Or is he gonna bring me home to heaven? The answer is yes. And in both cases, you win. When you're a follower of Jesus, you're in a win-win situation. That's the beauty of it. Sometimes he intervenes here and now and he rescues us. And other times he brings us home to heaven. But in either case, going to heaven, let me tell you, it's better than staying here. It's both. It's a win-win situation. And Paul understood this. There were so many times where Paul was threatened with death. If you don't stop preaching the name of Jesus, we're gonna cut your head off. And Paul was like, well, would you? Because for me to live is Christ. Like I get to do ministry, which is more beneficial for you, but to die is gain because I get to be with my Jesus. And this would settle the dilemma for me. So go ahead. Listen, what do you do to a person who has that kind of perspective? Nothing. There is nothing you can do to a person who lives with the eternal perspective and knows no matter what, my God will either rescue me or bring me home. But in either case, I'm a victor, not a victim. My God loves me. He's got a plan for me and he is going to see me through this. And that's the perspective I want you to leave here with today. That even in your darkest hours, you're in a win-win situation that God's gonna bring you through either on this side or on that. And because of that, to him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. So to wrap this whole thing up, what does it is finished mean for us today? It means that my struggles have a purpose and my pain has an end. My struggles have a purpose and my pain has an end. You're like, well, what purpose could my struggles possibly have? We know that Jesus struggled and suffered because he had to pay for our sin. And like Hebrews says, like we, so that we would have a high priest who could relate with us. And I think in the same way that Jesus had to suffer so he could relate with us, we have to suffer so that we can relate with him. It says it this way in 1 Peter who wrote a lot in his first epistle about the purpose and role of suffering in the life of a believer. I would encourage you to read it when you get home. But he says it this way, the purpose of our struggles, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but your darkest hours have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. The purpose of your pain, guys, is to produce perseverance in you, to make you more like Jesus so that praise may be given to him when your faith is proven genuine. When you go through your dark hours and you hold on to these assurances, people look in on that and say, you must serve a living God. And they give praise and glory and honor to him because the image of Jesus is revealed in you when you, he when you keep this perspective. Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus actually had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. Think about that. 
If Jesus as the son of God had to learn obedience through the things he suffered, how much more will we as mere mortals need to learn obedience through our sufferings? My struggle has a purpose and my pain has an end. Paul would write, I want to know Christ and I hope everyone here wants to know Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we're like, yes, I want the power of his resurrection. And then he says something that very few of us ever pray because it's a scary prayer. And he says, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And we're like, oh, do I have to pray that? Because I don't really want to know the fellowship of sharing your sufferings, but it's as we walk through sufferings, we're conformed to the image of Christ and he is revealed in us and praise is resulted in being given to him because your faith is proven genuine. Your struggle has a purpose and your pain has an end. It is finished. Bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for sending your son to not only die for us, but to show us how to live, to give us an example that we could study and draw hope from, who walked through some dark hours and gave us some wisdom to know, God, that in the midst of it, before the cross's finale, you spoke a definitive statement of victory even before the victory was realized. And so, God, for those who are here today in the middle of their own storm, in the middle of the darkness, they can't see anywhere around them, they've questioned you just like Job has, God, would your spirit just bring peace in the middle of the storm, God? We're going to raise a hallelujah in the middle of the storm, in the presence of our enemies, because you have the last word. It is finished. So Lord, may we draw hope today from these truths. God, that we would hold on to the assurance that you are all powerful, that you are all knowing, and that you are ever present. And because of that, God, we can know that you love us, that you want the best for us, that you've got a plan for us, and you are going to see us through and that these struggles we're walking through are producing perseverance in us. It's conforming us into your image so that the world around us could look in and see and know that you are who you said you were, the son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. So this morning, maybe there are some people here today who don't have that assurance of faith to know that God loves them. As you sit here today, you know that there, there's, there's unrest in you. There's not peace between you and God. You don't know where you would spend eternity. Maybe you think about that. Maybe you don't. But this morning, the Holy Spirit, I believe, is, is convicting you and drawing you because today is the day of salvation. Paul would write that if you simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite anybody here today who doesn't have the assurance of spending eternity in heaven with Jesus one day, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to say yes to him, simply raise your hand and let me know that's you here today. If you want to say yes to Jesus, you want to receive his free gift of salvation, is there anyone here that wants to receive him into their heart? I see that hand over here. Thank you, Jesus, right here. I'm so proud of you up front. Anybody else here today? Over here on the left, so proud of you. One more time, anybody else? 
back in the back. I'm so proud of you over here. Thank you, Jesus. This is why we're here. This is why we're here. This is a holy moment. All heads bowed and eyes closed. Church, I want you to join me in praying with those who are surrendering their lives to Jesus and joining his family. Let's pray together with them. Say, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner, and that's why you sent Jesus to pay for my sin, to die for my sin. Thank you for loving me that much. I believe that you rose from the dead. And because of that, I confess that you are the Lord. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me brand new. Take away the guilt and the shame. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And give me the strength to follow you and serve you every day for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. I give it to you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Church, will we lift up a loud shout of praise and welcome those born into God's family today? Woo! So awesome.